All right. Uh, we are in Romans today, Romans chapter 2, and we are finishing up, uh, Lord willing, Romans chapter 2. We're down to about verse 25, looking at the last uh, five verses of the uh, chapter. So we are making progress. We're, our speed has picked up a little bit. We're actually going to get through uh, chapter 2 in about four lessons. So we're moving right along. Uh, not that necessarily that's the objective, but it is encouraged that we're not bogged down spending 18 weeks in one verse, <laughs> which in some places in Romans you could probably do. Uh, but uh, so uh, last week we were looking at verses 17 through 24. And uh, let's uh, just kind of look down through those verses. In fact, let's do this. Let's, uh, let's read beginning in verse 17 through the end of the chapter. And then we'll kind of review a little bit of what, what we talked about last week and kind of where we are. In verse 17, he says, But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know His will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of truth, you therefore who teach another... Do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who uh, boast in the law through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you are transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. <clears throat> so if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, Will he not judge you who, though having the letter of the law and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. Okay, glancing down then in verses 17 through 24, what are some of the things you remember that we talked about last week? Okay, can you elaborate? Okay. Okay, great, good. What else? Okay, great. 
Okay. Okay. Good. Yeah. So these, this list that he's giving here is not a negative list. It's a positive list. These are privileges that you have if you're a Jew. What else? Sarah, back there, you were going to say something. Did you opt out or? Oh, no. Oh, okay. Okay. Anything else? Okay. Okay. They have these kind of uh, two pillars, we might say, or two supports that they think makes them special and puts them in this special relationship with God. And Paul will address more of that next week. Is there really any advantage to being a Jew is the question that he'll ask there at the beginning of chapter 3. And so we will talk about that. But they have these kind of two supports and Paul has launched into these two supports uh, first to this issue of them having the law and today we're going to look at the issue of circumcision. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. But, but uh, yeah, good point, Gary. Anything else? Okay, let's, let's kind of get our bearings again. And I keep doing this because I think it's important for us to keep a perspective on Paul's argument so we don't get lost or we don't anticipate things, uh, kind of insert things into his argument before he's ready for them to be inserted. But Paul has made the assertion clear back in the middle of chapter 1 that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everybody who believes. And so he's made this, he's made this assertion that this gospel that he preaches is the way people are saved and he's going to argue that it's the only way people are saved. And so it's necessary for him to show that all mankind are under the wrath of God, under God's judgment, because all men are sinners. And, uh, and so if we can kind of visualize it this way, is here Paul's in the room here and, and we represent all of mankind, okay? And so Paul is now addressing all of mankind and he's trying to explain to all of us here in the room that we are all sinners, every one of us, and we're not just sort of sinners, but we're all sinners that are such bad sinners that we all are under the wrath of God, okay? And so he begins in chapter 1 with this lengthy description about these people who have... Uh, uh, and, and he's pointing to us as a, as a group here in the classroom. He's pointing to us, representing all mankind. He's pointing to us and he's saying, you have exchanged uh, the glory of God for uh, an image uh, of a beast or an image of man or whatever. You've exchanged the glory of God. You've exchanged the truth of God. Uh, and you've exchanged the natural function of your bodies for that which is unnatural. You have suppressed the truth in unrighteousness and you've done all this ungodly stuff. Okay? And so we're all sitting here in our chairs and we're all squirming and we're not really very comfortable, but for about half of the group here, we're going, well, he's pretty well got us nailed. He's got us figured out, right? But over here on the other side, 
we've got these people that are going, well, I don't know, Paul. I'm not buying your argument because I'm really pretty good. Because I, you know, I know these things are wrong and I, I don't approve of people doing these things. In fact, those people over there on the other side of the room, I, I think they're pretty despicable people because I don't think we should act that way and I don't think we should live that way and I try not to live that way. And so, Paul, I, I can see where, the, where those people over there on that side of the room, uh, where they would be, you know, where they deserve God's judgment. But those of us over here, we're pretty good people. And I just, I just don't buy it. I don't think God would judge us because we're really pretty good. And so in the beginning of chapter 2 then, Paul narrows his focus instead of talking to the whole room. He just comes over and he talks to these people over here. Okay, These are the good people. These are the moralists. These are the people who have the law written in their heart and they, and they ostensibly try to keep the law. Okay, And so Paul says to them, he says, now listen, I know you think you're pretty good, but in reality you're doing everything these people do. You're just hiding it so we can't see it. And you're doing everything these people are doing and, and you're judging them for doing it, but you're doing the very same things. And so you, too, are under the wrath of God. And so these people over here on this side of the room, they're starting to squirm a little bit and they're going, okay, well, he's right. I really, in my heart, I really do do those kind of things, etc., etc., etc. But back in the back of the room, we have a couple rows of people who still aren't convinced, okay? And so, one of, the, one of their members stands up and he waves his hand. He says, wait a minute, Paul. You know, I, I can agree with what you say about all those people over there on the left side of the room. And, and I can agree with what you say about most of the people here on my side of the room. But us people back here in the back rows, we're remember, not married many of us, but we're pretty special. God has singled us out. God has done some special things for us that He hasn't done for all the rest of the people. And so, we're pretty convinced that we're not under God's wrath. That's less than Peggy back there. That's right, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so, they're going, well, we're, 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 we're really special to God. And we're so special to God that He's done special things to make sure that we're safe. He's put us in a special covenant relationship with Him. And He's done two things for us. One is He's given us His law. The law. The law of Moses. And we have the law of Moses. And we keep the law of Moses. So, yeah, I can understand where these, where these other moralists here on my side of the room where, you know, where... where they're under God's judgment because they just have that law written in their heart and it's really not, they don't really understand fully God's mind and God's will and they don't have the law like we have the law. So I can understand they're still not cutting the mustard, but, but we're just a breed above. And not only that, but God gave us a sign. God gave us a sign that we were His special people. And if we have this sign, we can't go to hell. And that is the sign of circumcision. And we, so we have the law and we have circumcision. And so Paul, standing up here in the front of the room, he zeroes in on that and, and them. And that's what he begins to do uh, there in verse 17, where he says, well, now you say you're Jews 
And you have all these good things going on, as Debbie was pointing out. I have all these good things going on. God blessings God's given them and prerogatives God has given them and they're all great things, he says, but there's a problem. You who would teach others, do you not teach yourselves? You who say do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who say do not steal, do you steal? You who say you abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who say you keep the law, do you actually break the law? And so so he begins to hammer away, first of all, in verses 17 through 24, on this first pillar that we talked about, the pillar of the law. And he's got him kind of reeling back a little bit and going, oh, that's pretty hard, Paul. But still, we've got circumcision. Now, we have to understand how the Jew understands circumcision in Paul's day. Because okay. circumcision is this covenant sign. When was it first given? Okay, it was first given to Abraham. And it was given to Abraham when God had renewed uh, his covenant to Abraham, uh, a covenant he had given earlier, and then uh, later on he renewed it again. And to give Abraham assurance of this covenant, he gave him a sign, a sign of circumcision. We'll go back and talk about that in a little bit. But he gave him this sign of circumcision which is the sign of the covenant, this special covenant relationship that God entered into with Abraham and then subsequently with Abraham's descendants or Abraham's seed. Uh, But as time progressed, the Jew began to kind of view this circumcision thing in ways that it really wasn't intended to be viewed. So by the time you get to Paul's day... Circumcision has become your guarantee of salvation. So much so that one of the Jewish rabbis, who was, I guess, appropriately named Levi, uh, wrote and he said, uh, uh, he said this, he says, Abraham will stand at the entrance of Gehenna and will not let any circumcised man go down there. Okay, so there is this mentality, and there are many there are other writers, uh, Jewish writers, who said similar types of things. The idea is, if you're circumcised, you can't go to hell. Okay. So this is kind of the Jew's ace in the hole. This is his one thing. Okay, all this other stuff, all these other arguments that Paul's made. He said, well, okay, Paul, okay, I'll concede that. But this is my ace and hole. This is my guarantee. If I'm circumcised, I can't go to hell. Because Abraham's going to be standing there at the gate of hell and he's not going to let any circumcised person go down there. And so this is the mentality. It is that, the, is that this rite of circumcision has somehow saved the Jew. And so this is the last kind of obstacle that Paul has to tackle as he deals with this whole issue of all men being under the wrath of God. Okay. So that's what he begins to do in verse 25. So he's dealt with the law. Now he's going to deal with circumcision. And the answer to the law was, well, great, you say you have the law, but you don't keep the law. So you're out of luck. Because you've got to keep the law and you've got to keep it perfectly. If you break one point of the law, you are a lawbreaker. You are a transgressor. 
So we've dispensed with the law as any hope that you might have. Now let's talk about circumcision. And he says in verse 25, he says, For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law, but if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has begun become uncircumcision. So Paul then begins to discuss this value of circumcision. And he says circumcision has a value, but only if you keep the law. Okay. Now, it's a little difficult to figure out exactly what does Paul mean when he says circumcision has a value. Is he, is he saying that it has a value or has the value that the Jew of his day thinks that it has? Or is he saying that circumcision has the value it was intended to have? Now, when we, when we think about circumcision, we understand that circumcision was a sign, right? What was it a sign of? Excuse me? Okay. So, okay. Sign of the covenant. Somebody else is going to say something? Separation. Okay. So it was a it was a sign of of the descendants of Abraham being set apart, being a special group of people who have entered into this covenant relationship with God. Okay. Now we're going to explore some aspects of that later uh, as we move along. But but generally circumcision was intended uh, in, to be a sign. So it was. It was, but it was a sign of the people's covenant relationship with God. Okay. It was not a sign of their ultimate redemption. Okay. That's important to understand. How do we know that? How do we know that circumcision is not a sign of ultimate salvation? Okay. 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 We obviously have many circumcised people who are unsaved, beginning with Ishmael. Okay. So we have we have all these uncircumcised people. So it's not a sign of ultimate redemption, but it is a sign of being associated with the people of the covenant and and being a participant in many of the blessings that inhere upon those people. Right. So that's what it is a sign of. Uh, but the question comes up and I'll try to be delicate here you know but the question comes up who is it assigned to? Okay, it's assigned to men uh, but which, which men? Okay, the person it's done to. Okay. Nobody else, aside from his spouse, is ever going to see that sign, right? It's just a sign to him. In other words, we have to understand that circumcision isn't a sign to God because God doesn't need any signs, right? It's not a sign to God. It's not a sign to anybody else. It's a sign to me. 
It's a reminder to me that I am of the covenant community. And that I have two things as a member of this covenant community. I have two things. I am a participant in the blessings that come to that covenant community as a result of being associated with it. Okay? Uh, not all the blessings, not the blessing of salvation as we pointed out, but many of the blessings that were given to Abraham and to his descendants, promises of land and other promises like that. Those are promises that are, that are, are mine because I am part of the covenant community and circumcision reminds me of that. It is a reminder to me personally. It's a reminder to the person who was circumcised. But it's also a reminder of his obligations because by the time we get, uh, we get to the wilderness and we get to Sinai, we have the Mosaic Covenant. Now, the Mosaic Covenant is different than the Abrahamic Covenant in one crucial matter is that the Mosaic Covenant was conditional. The Abrahamic Covenant was unconditional. So now you have the Mosaic Covenant and there are obligations that come with the Mosaic Covenant. You have to keep the law. So circumcision serves as a reminder to the individual Jew that he has both the blessings and the obligations of being a member of the covenant community. Right? So when Paul says, indeed, circumcision has value... The value he's referring to, it appears, is the value that it was in design that it was designed to serve, the purpose that it was designed to serve, which is to remind the individual of his special relationship, his his being part of this community and being a uh, participant in the blessings and the obligations of being a part of this community. But Paul says that it has value if you keep the law. Right? If you keep the law, circumcision has value because it's reminding you of something that's real. But if you don't keep the law, he says there in verse 25, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. What does he mean? Okay, basically he's saying your circumcision has no meaning. It has no value if you don't keep the law. Uh, yeah, really, it does. Because what it's saying is that you've got all these additional privileges and blessings, which he'll talk about in chapter 3. You have all these additional blessings and you have squandered them. To whom much is given, much is required. So, so, Paul now constructs this scenario in these few verses that we're looking at today. He constructs this scenario of kind of two hypothetical persons. Now, one of them is really hypothetical and the other is not very hypothetical. Okay? But they're two hypothetical persons. Who are they? Okay. Okay. So, so let's take them one at a time. The first one is the first hypothetical person is a circumcised person who does what? He does not keep the law. So, a circumcised person who's a trans. So, over here we got a circumcised person who does not keep the law. 
So he has this emblem, this sign on his body that says that he's a member of the covenant community, but part of the covenant is you got to keep the law. Okay, so you got point guy A over here and he's a circumcised guy who doesn't keep the law. Over here we have guy B. And how, how is he described? Okay, and is he circumcised or uncircumcised? He's uncircumcised, but he keeps the law. Okay, so this is the picture that Paul is trying to create for us. These two characters. Because Paul's arguing with these people in the back of the room back here with Peg and Lessie back. Uh, Peg and Lessie. Peggy and Les. <laughs> Sorry about that. He's arguing with them because there are, there are representative Jews here today. Uh, so he's arguing with them, okay? And, and he's wanting to show to them, to convince them that even though the Jew is circumcised, he has, he's essentially uncircumcised. So I have these two people. I've got this guy over here and he's circumcised, but he doesn't keep the law. And over here, I have an uncircumcised person and he does keep the law. So this person over here, person A, who is circumcised, but doesn't keep the law, he is effectively what? Uncircumcised. His circumcision is irrelevant. So what Paul's telling these people back there at the back of the moralist group, he's saying, listen, you say you're circumcised, but in essence you are not. But it's worse than that. Because over here, we have somebody who is not circumcised. But what do they do? They keep the law. Now, I want you to notice, back a couple of weeks ago, we talked about all the different ways the word law is used in Romans, right? Okay. So, keep that in mind. We made all these distinctions about how the word law is used in Romans. Now, we have a guy over here and he's uncircumcised, but what is he keeping? The Mosaic law. The Mosaic law. Okay. So, he is presumably a Gentile. He is presumably not in the covenant community. But he is keeping the Mosaic law. It's interesting, the word that Paul uses there in the Greek is a word that could be translated, he guards. <laughs> so you have one guy over here and he has total disregard for the law of Moses. And you have this Gentile over here who's uncircumcised and he has this high esteem and regard for the law of Moses. So much so that he keeps it. Now this guy, his uncircumcision is essentially what? Circumcision. Why? Because he keeps the law. Now, one question commentators wrestle with here is, okay, who is this guy? <laughs> who is this guy over here? Who is this uncircumcised person who keeps the law? Well, it's real easy for us to make one of the mistakes I talked about last week. We're in the middle of this lengthy argument of Paul's and it's very easy for us to anticipate his conclusions and jump ahead, okay? Let's don't do that. Let's let Paul make his argument. Okay. So it's very easy for us to go, okay, well, the only 
uncircumcised person who keeps the law is somebody who's keeping it by faith, right? But you're anticipating Paul's argument. You're jumping ahead. That's not where Paul is in his argument. The, where Paul is in his argument at this point is to show us that, it, that so far in the logic of things, in this whole plan that he's laying out, if, if we want to escape the judgment of God, we have to keep the law and we have to keep it perfectly. Because that's the, that's the measure by which God judges all men. He judges all men by the law. It's not the hearers of the law, but the doers of the law who are justified before him. Paul has already told us. So, so this guy over here, is, uh, he's, he, Paul is not talking here about a believing Gentile who keeps the law by faith. That's not who he's talking about. He's talking about a hypothetical Gentile over here who keeps all the law of Moses. Okay. That's who he's talking about. And he's doing it to illustrate to this guy over here who is a circumcised person who doesn't keep the law that he's up a crick without a paddle. Okay. That's what he's doing. So he's going to use this guy over here to show this guy that he is whistling in the graveyard if he thinks that his circumcision is going to keep him out of hell. So I've got this guy over here and he's uncircumcised. But he keeps the law. And so, he is essentially circumcised. Because this guy really is in a right standing with God. And this guy over here is not. Because this guy keeps the law perfectly. Okay? I'm talking about perfect completion, fulfillment of the law. Okay? So, he does it perfectly. Totally hypothetical. But hypothetically, we can understand then, this guy over here understands, well, yeah, if there's a guy like that, then I can understand where if there's somebody and he really does keep the law of Moses, even though he's uncircumcised, it would only be just for God to save him. And when he realizes that, then he realizes, okay, that doesn't look very good for me. Because here's this guy over here and he keeps the law. And I'm over here and I have the law and I have circumcision, but I don't but I don't keep it. I'm a transgressor of the law. But it gets even worse. Notice what he says. He says And he, verse twenty seven, and he who is physically uncircumcised if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who, though having the letter of the law and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? Now, the translation of that verse is a little dicey, but I'm going to go with the New American here. And, uh, and uh, because I think that this is the, the way it's translated here, it makes the most sense in the context. Uh, but he's saying, uh, he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you? who though having the letter of the law and the circum- and circumcision are transgressional. So not only is that guy over there the uncircumcised keeper of the law, not only is he essentially circumcised, but he's going to be your judge. Now that's like fingernails on the chalkboard to a Jew. 
Because he's thinking... He's always been thinking. Remember that whole part about that we looked at last week? He's a, a, a guide to the Gentiles and a light to the blind and a corrector of the foolish and a, and a teacher of the immature. See, the Jew, that's the Jew's perception of himself. So the Jew has thought all this time, he's thought we're going to be the ones who judge the Gentiles because we have the law and we keep the law and so we're going to be the ones whom God is going to use to judge all these uncircumcised people. And Paul says, well, I hate to tell you, but that's not quite how the way, the way it's going to work out. Now, Paul is not suggesting that this guy would actually be the judge because we know that God ultimately is the judge. But what he's saying is, this man's keeping of the law exposes... Guy B over here, his keeping of the law exposes Guy A's transgression of the law and shows it for what it is. Now, I have a good example of this, illustration of this from my school days. Because when I was in school, talking about high school days, when I was in high school, I I was not necessarily the kind of student you teachers would want. <laughs> okay. Uh, we all know about these students who who just don't put out up to their potential, right? <laughs> okay. Uh, well, that's me. Okay. Uh, at least that's what they told me. You know the. They always, you know, I don't know, maybe, maybe teachers tell all their kids this. I don't know. But, but my teachers told me and told my parents that I had a lot more potential, but I was too bent on goofing off. I was a real goof off. I still am. He's a what? Oh, juvenile. Okay. Well, I wasn't quite a juvenile delinquent. I was the next step to it. I was a PK. Preacher's kid. Okay. And I had one teacher, my fifth grade teacher said to me, Rick, you're just like every other PK I ever knew. And I tell you, it was a cut. It was a painful cut, but I never, obviously never forgot it. <laughs> but, but I was a goof off. And so when finally I got into high school and the courses got a little more difficult and I managed to to get a D or two in a couple of classes, then, you know, my parents, in small high school, small country, you know, type high school, my parents, you know, come in for parent-teacher conference, you know, and I'm there and, and, you know, and they're saying, you know, Rick can do better than this. You know, he can do, he's capable of better work than this. He's just goofing off. Well, I'm kind of gay, guy A over here, right? But, you, but those of you teachers, you know there's some kids in school who don't have all that much ability. But they work like dogs. And they excel. And when they excel, their performance serves as a judge on all the Rick Harveys over here that are goofing off. That's what Paul's saying here about this uncircumcised keeper of the law. 
He's saying, look at you Jews over here. You've got all these advantages. Now, if we have a guy over here who's keeping the law, even though he's uncircumcised, will not his keeping the law actually serve to condemn you and judge you? And so, we are now in this predicament where the Jew is beginning to recognize that Paul's condemnation of all men includes him. Because the reality, Paul says, in uh, verse 28, is he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. So Paul is beginning here to... He's beginning to kind of hint at what we might call a radical new reality. Now, in one sense, it's really not new. Because this whole idea of circumcision being of the heart goes all the way back to the law of Moses. goes back to the book of Deuteronomy. In the book of Deuteronomy, God enjoined the children of Israel to circumcise their hearts in the early chapters of Deuteronomy. And in the later chapters of Deuteronomy, after God had given his warning of the blessings and the curses and told them, now, if you keep the law, this is what happens. And if you don't keep the law, this is what happens. And you're going to be captive. You're going to be led off into captivity. And all these ugly things are going to happen to you. And then in chapter 30, he says, he says but then I'm going to go and I'm going to bring you back and I'm going to restore you. And he says, I am going to circumcise you and your children in their hearts. So this idea of the circumcision of the heart is not new, but it's been clouded over. It's been forgotten. It's been overlooked by Judaism. So to the Judaism of Paul's day, to most Jews in Paul's day, circumcision is just this external thing. It's done to you when you're a little baby, eight days old. You really don't have anything to say about it, but bless God, it saves you. And you can't go to hell if you've been circumcised. And it doesn't matter what condition your heart is. And Paul says, he is not a Jew who is one outwardly. And circumcision is not that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. By the Spirit, not by the letter. And His praise is not from men, but His praise is from God. And so Paul introduces this kind of, what was to the Jew, a radically new concept. Although if he'd read his Old Testament, as Paul had, he would have discovered it was back there all the time. But as this radical new concept that there's this group of people who are going to be God's special people who are circumcised not outwardly necessarily, but in their hearts. 
by the Spirit of God, there's going to be something transformed in their hearts. And somehow, miraculously, they're going to keep the law. And so Paul is now finally beginning to hint that maybe there's an answer out there. But I sure don't know what it is. Because I don't know how to get that heart. Now, we need to be careful with this passage because it's very easy to misunderstand it. When Paul talks, or excuse me, when the Scriptures talk about the seed of Abraham or the descendants of Abraham, it does so in at least four different ways. It's kind of like that whole issue of the law in Romans. That the law is used different ways in Romans and when you're reading Romans, you need to know at each point how is he using it. Well, it's really the same way with the whole issue of who is a Jew? Who is a descendant of Abraham? Okay? And when God first came to Abraham and promised him and said, I'm going to give you descendants like the sand of the sea and all this, and there's going to be kings come from you. And he says, so he talks about these multiple kings that are going to come from Abraham and as Abraham's descendants. Okay. And so, so finally, Abraham has a son. And what is that son's name? Ishmael. And then God comes to him, as I mentioned earlier, and restates the covenant. And he says, now, as a sign of this covenant, I want you to circumcise yourself and all the males of your household. Right? Remember all that when we studied Genesis? Okay. So who got circumcised? Ishmael. And who else? All of them were not necessarily just everybody who was under his authority. The slaves, the servants, the male children of the servants. Hundreds of guys got circumcised. Like it or not. (laughs) Hundreds of guys got circumcised. How many of those guys were physical descendants of Abraham? Just one. Just one. Isaac wasn't even born yet. Okay. So we have, we have a classification, and then ultimately, eventually, Isaac is born, and then he's circumcised. Okay. So, so kind of the first classification is the natural, the natural descendants of Abraham. Uh, and uh, that marker doesn't work very well. The natural descendants of Abraham, but which also included a bunch of people who were just his, his descendants, not by natural birth, but just by association with him. So just by being associated with Abraham, you were circumcised. It was a sign that you get some of the bennies that it gets, that you get from being associated with Abraham. Okay. Those under his authority, if you will. Yeah, those under his authority. So this is a natural descendant. It includes Ishmael and it includes all the sons of Keturah, who was Abraham's second wife after Sarah died. Remember, she had several sons and all of those guys get circumcised. But not all of them are believers. Not all of them are believers. Just some of them are believers. But they're all circumcised. as To signify that they are part of this community. 
Okay. Well, then we get, as time moves on, we discover, oh, there's more to it. Because at one point, Abraham says to God, he says, now, God, would that you would do this with Isaac, or with Ishmael. And God says, no, that's not my plan. I got another, I got a special plan. And so we have his, his kind of, um, well, I'm striking out here, aren't I? Then's marker number three. His uh, special descendants. We'll call them. Okay. And these are, these are special in the sense that it is through these descendants that God's elective purposes are accomplished. Okay. And so that begins with whom? Isaac. Okay. So this is Isaac. And then Jacob. And then all the descendants of Jacob, right? Okay. So these are kind of the special descendants. They're still natural by birth, physical, but they, but they are singled out. And, and Paul will make an issue of that later in Romans, how God can do that if he wants. He can single out and say, well, it's not going to be uh, Esau. It's going to be Jacob. And God can do that. That's a choice that God can make. So we have these special descendants represented in, in Abraham's first uh, or in Abraham's immediate descendant of Isaac, or we have these special descendants. And all of those are circumcised, right? Are all of them safe? They're not, are they? As one commentator points out, you've got both the Elijahs and the Ahabs. You've got both the believers and the pagans. They're all descendants of Abraham. They're all circumcised. They all bear a sign of being part of the covenant community. Ahab is part of the covenant community. But he's a wicked, wicked king. Right? Along with a bunch of others. So you have these special descendants. Well, then you go forward in the story of redemption and pretty soon you discover there's another kind of seed of Abraham. And this we call or I would call the singular seed. What am I talking about? Jesus. Okay. And Paul makes a Paul makes a point of that, right? In Galatians chapter three, he talks about Jesus as this singular seed of Abraham, through through whom the promises to Abraham ultimately are all fulfilled. Through you, through your seed, singular all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So it's in Jesus then, the singular seed of Abraham, that all the nations of the world ultimately are blessed. They're all blessed, and we saw that as we were going through Genesis, all the uh, people all over the world were blessed by the special descendants of Abraham. But, But really, ultimately, the ultimate blessing of Abraham is realized in the singular seed of Abraham. But now in Romans chapter 2, Paul introduces us to the fourth sense in which we think of the descendants of Abraham. And those are his spiritual seed. And as we go forward in Romans, we will discover that the spiritual seed are all those who are of what of Abraham? The faith of Abraham. Right.
Okay? So, but when we get to this fourth kind of the seed of Abraham, or fourth sense of the seed of Abraham, circumcision is no longer an issue. And that's what Paul's talking about. So when Paul says in Romans chapter 2, he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, but one who is one inwardly, this is what he's talking about. Now, it is a mistake to read Romans chapter 2 and think that what Paul is saying is that all this other stuff is just erased off the board and doesn't count anymore. Some people do that. Some people read the fact that Paul says in Romans chapter 2 that he who is of the... uh, uh, He who is circumcised in his heart is the one who is really a Jew and it's Jew is not a thing about is not an outward thing and they basically say okay this whole Jewish thing is now irrelevant and all those promises that applied to the special descendants of Israel the national promises that applied to the special no longer apply because there's no there, there's no more, there's no such thing anymore as a Jew as an outward Jew there's only an internal Jew Now, how do I know that Paul isn't just kind of erasing these guys off the board and saying they're not relevant anymore? (laughs) Okay. Okay, great. That's a good point. Those weren't the ones I was thinking of. I was thinking of Romans chapter 11. Because in Romans chapter 11, Paul makes an argument. He says, wait a minute. God's not finished with the Jews. And obviously, he's talking about those who are the special descendants, the external Jews. So, so it is a mistake to read these verses and think that what Paul is saying here is the only thing that ever is important to God anymore is this. And, and this whole thing about being a physical Jew is no longer relevant or important or has any significance in the New Testament era. That's not what Paul is arguing. So be careful when you're, when you're reading about in the New Testament about the Jews, and particularly in the letters of Paul, etc., be careful to figure out which one of these is he talking about. The side issue, the, uh, the uh, opposite problem occurred wherever, and I just heard this in the news recently, where someone doesn't say, okay, we're not going to throw out the Jews, they're still important, and then they go on to say everything that, because they're God's chosen race, everything they do is good now. Yeah, yeah. And so they go way on the other yeah. side and say, well, we, we must agree with everything they do. Because they're <clears throat> Which clearly Paul is refuting here in chapter 2. Yeah, good point. Okay. Well, that's all well and good. What is Paul's point? What Paul is saying is all of us, because we are all sinners, are under the judgment of God. And it doesn't do any good to rely upon external mechanisms. It's not the external mechanisms of our religion that save us. We need a different heart. To the Jew... You can be circumcised. You can be circumcised on the eighth day. You can be circumcised according to the law. And you can still be under the wrath of God. 
to the to the to the would-be Christian in the 21st century, you can be baptized. You can be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You can be baptized consciously of your own volition or you can be baptized as an infant without, you know, whatever the case is, you can be baptized and it's not going to make an ounce of difference when you stand before Christ. But baptism is not the only outward ritual we rely upon, particularly as Baptists. There are other outward rituals that we rely on. How about walking the aisle? How many people, how many people are going to hell who say, but I walk the aisle? You know, the evangelist was up there and he was preaching and I was convicted and I walked the aisle. And I made a public profession of faith. How is your public profession of faith any different than the Jews' circumcision? Well, I did more than walk the aisle. I prayed the sinner's prayer. Is the sinner's prayer going to save you? It's not. The sinner's prayer is not going to save you. You've got to have a transformed heart. You've got to have a heart circumcised by the Spirit. And, and it's possible to actually pray the sinner's prayer and perish in the flames of hell. And we could go on, couldn't we? We could talk about church attendance or tithing and giving or all the many things that people do. And when, when they are confronted by their sin, they say simply, but I was baptized. But I attend church. But I walked the aisle. I prayed the sinner's prayer. I did this. I did that. Those aren't the questions. The questions are, are you saved by the blood of Christ? And do you know it? Just briefly, let me just share about my own experience. I grew up in a Christian home. Devout parents loved the Lord. Not perfect parents by a long shot, but they loved Christ. And my mother, uh, among her gifts, is she was gifted in working with children. So I had the benefit of growing up in a Christian home with a woman who was gifted at teaching children about the Lord. And a very early age, I came to Christ. I think. Because it was so early, I don't remember it. And so at not, several times when, as I got older, I would come to my mother and I would say, when did I get saved? And she would say to me, well, Rick, it was back when you were four years old. And she would describe it to me. And I'd walk away and I'd go, oh, good, I'm saved. Because somebody else was telling me I had done something to be saved. Well, I actually think I was saved at the age of four. But eventually I had to come to grips with this because I could not 
pinpoint anything or any time in my life that I could remember in which I had prayed a prayer or walked an aisle or or had a conversion experience. I couldn't remember it. So what will be my plea when I stand before Christ? Will I point back to that day when I prayed a prayer? When I walked the aisle? When I was baptized? When I was circumcised? Will I point at any of those things? What will I point at? I only have one thing to point at, folks. And as I stand here today, it's the same thing. I only have one sacrifice and I only have one plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that He died for me. And I will be saved and you will be saved not because of anything we have done. But we will be saved because of what He has done. And only when we cast ourselves completely on Him are we saved. And when I stand before Christ, when I stand before God, and He asks that question, which I don't know if He'll ever ask, why should I let you into heaven? My answer is going to be what I hope your answer will be. I'm trusting in your Son, Father. I'm just trusting in your Son. I have no other argument. I have no other plea. Okay, next week we'll go on.